Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, March 6th, 2022. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, many of you know that my wife Jody and I dated in high school. Here's a photo from our senior year. Uh, I asked her out to prom on January 15th, 1986. You see my Hawaii 86 shirt in the background. Uh, And by February 14th, less than a month later, Valentine's Day, we were officially boyfriend and girlfriend. We went to the same high school on the big island of Hawaii. One of our daily traditions that we started that spring semester of our senior year Uh, was to pass uh, notes or letters to each other in the morning. Now, we would write them the night before. We would exchange them as soon as we both got to school. Each of us rode different buses, arrived somewhere around the same time. And actually, we have written a lot of letters to each other over the years. There was one semester of college when I was on a different island than than Jody was. I've actually kept most of them. Uh, This is just one of the boxes of Jim and Jody memorabilia that I have. in storage in my garage, and as you can see, it is filled with all kinds of notes and letters and correspondences. Well, I spent some time uh, flipping through them yesterday, and I wanted to share one of the notes with you, so you get a sense of our relationship 36 years ago. Uh, This one Jody addressed to my dearest, and inside she writes, March 4th, 1986. Hello, honey. Hope you had a great uh, bus ride today. I studied my physics all the way in. Did you get your odds and ends homework done? I hope so. I didn't, and it's already late, so dot, dot, dot. Now, I won't read it all, but in the, in the letter, she also mentions I'm going to be leaving that day for uh, a neighbor island with my mock trial team uh, to go to Honolulu and to be there for a few days for an event, and she ends with this. Well, this will be my last letter to you for a while. Anytime you see a real pretty girl in Honolulu, can you please remember that looks aren't important? And you've got someone home waiting just for you. I love you, honey. And she signed it, yours, which is how she signed most of them. Well, in the ancient Near East, letter writing was an extremely important means of communication. In a world without high-speed communications or travel, at a time when travel was both expensive and often dangerous, letters took on great importance. In fact, letters were seen as a stand-in for the presence of the letter writer. Welcome to a brand new sermon series entitled Before All Things. And this series will be a little bit different um, from recent ones. We're not going to be talking about uh, uh, huge, amazing, dynamic stories uh, each and every week. Instead, we're going to be looking at two chapters from one of Paul's letters, the letter of 2 Corinthians. And although we'll be just looking at a few verses every week, my hope is that one will come to not only understand uh, this important letter by Paul a little better, but also that we'll be able to re-examine our own relationship when it comes to generosity. And, And what does it mean to be generous as followers of Jesus? Now, I thought it was important to preach a series on generosity when we're not doing a um, stewardship campaign. So it doesn't feel like we're trying to twist your arm to get you into giving more to the church. This is getting to the core foundation of what does it mean for us as Christians to be generous. 
And of course, we've just started the season of Lent, the Christian church's historic six weeks of preparation for the celebration of Easter. Now, Lent lasts for 40 days, not including Sundays. Sundays were always seen as mini Easter's in the eyes of the church. But this is a season of spiritual reflection and renewal. It's often marked by fasting, praying, giving, and other spiritual disciplines. In fact, many of you may have grown up with the idea of um, giving something up for Lent, so uh, having a little bit of self-denial as a way of, of remembering the incredible sacrifice that Jesus gave up in order uh, to live and love uh, among us as well. Lent is an intentional time to focus on our spiritual lives in light of the ultimate gift of Easter. The Apostle Paul was from Tarsus, and he grew up a devout Jew among the class known as Pharisees. Now, he was very anti-Christian to start. In fact, uh, when he connected with the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, he was actively uh, persecuting the followers of Jesus. But then one day on the road to Damascus, Paul had an encounter with the risen Christ, and everything changed. Over time, Paul wound up among the church of Antioch in Syria, and he became an associate of the apostle Barnabas. As Mitzi Minor writes in her Smith and Helwey's commentary on 2 Corinthians, the church in Antioch would become one of the most significant centers of faith in the early years of the Jesus movement. Well, that community felt the Spirit of God calling to send Barnabas and Paul out among uh, the area of Asia Minor to preach to the Gentiles, the Gentiles meaning anyone who is not Jewish, to tell them about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, prior to this, most, in fact, almost all of the early Christians were actually Jewish followers of Jesus that came to see Jesus as the Messiah. But as the story and the message spread, it started reaching out into non-Jewish communities as well. Well, the early church kind of wrestled with what does it mean for outsiders, non-Jews, to come and be a part of the movement? Should they adhere to all of the things that they did as they were growing up as Jewish? Meaning, are they required to get, are the males required to get circumcised, which was a Jewish tradition? Should they uh, adhere to all of the kosher eating and dietary regulations? Well, after they discussed and talked about it, uh, they settled on not requiring any of those. Uh, uh, and so it seemed like, okay, it's, it's now set. But then one day when the disciple Peter came to Antioch, Paul noticed that he refused to sit and eat at the same table with the Gentile Christians. And Paul's like, well, you're being kind of a hypocrite. Like, if God is open, the love is open to everyone, why won't you sit and eat with them? And he literally called out one of the uh, most significant disciples of Jesus, uh, Peter. Well, because of this incident, uh, Paul and Barnabas parted company. Barnabas kind of sided with Peter. And then Paul took with him a man named Silas, and they continued on the preaching and teaching journey throughout the Mediterranean region, which eventually brought them to the city of Corinth. The Romans had conquered and destroyed the great Greek city of Corinth in 146 BC. They wanted to make a statement to the rest of Greece, uh, this is the price to pay if you oppose Roman power. About a hundred years later, the Romans rebuilt the city. 
under the direction of Julius Caesar, and it became the seat of government for the Roman province in the southern region of Greece called Achaia. Well, sitting astride this narrow isthmus between sea lanes leading to Italy on one side and Asia on the other, Corinth's commercial, political, and military advantages virtually demanded that it be rebuilt as a city. Mitzi Minor remarks that the seaports brought much commerce to the city, as well as settlers from all around the Mediterranean region, eager to participate in this new, booming economy. Now, because the city was rebuilt after 100 years of lying in ruins, there were no old money families to run the socio-political scene there in Corinth. So recently freed persons, unemployed military veterans, and even displaced peasants uh, were brought in to quickly repopulate the city. This commerce, in turn, created a prosperous banking system that immediately brought lots of new wealth to the people of Corinth. And then also public buildings and shrines, temples were built, plus places uh, that had uh, Roman inscriptions, monuments to Caesar, and other Roman influences, because Rome wanted to make sure that Corinth didn't forget who they owed for this prosperity, right? They didn't do it on their own. Rome kind of set the table for them to be wealthy and prosperous. So they were constantly in Corinth being reminded of the emperor's power and authority and place in their lives. It was into this thriving new, new Roman city that Paul brought the message of Jesus Christ during the years 49 to 50 AD. With the help of Prissa and Aquila, Paul founded a, a collection, a network, if you will, of house churches in the city of Corinth. They called it an ecclesia, a church fellowship. Now, it's highly probable that uh, most of the Corinthian Christians were actually from the lower socioeconomic strata of the city, not necessarily the ones that had the newfound wealth. According to the book of Acts, Paul stayed in Corinth for about 18 months as this Christian community was birthed into being and started to thrive. After leaving Corinth, Paul continued his mission to preach and teach and start other churches around the Mediterranean region, and he would write back to the Corinthians on several occasions, and they would write back to him, seeking advice on problems that they were um, having and experiencing as they were being a church. Now, not all of these writings have survived, but what has survived between these exchanges is what we know of the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul did return back to the city after a while, but it was a really difficult and painful visit. We, we can surmise that he was either insulted or injured by a member of the Corinthian community, and none of the rest of the church members spoke up for Paul. None of them came to his defense. So he was so upset and grieved by this experience, he altered his travel plans and he left to go back to Ephesus. And there he wrote a harsh and reprimanding letter to the Corinthians instead of coming back to visit again. Now, that's not the book of 2 Corinthians. But then, after hearing that the majority of the Christians in Corinth had repented, Paul then wrote another letter to them full of the comfort and consolation that he felt by uh, their misunderstanding getting smoothed over and reconciliation happening. That, uh, that letter is what constitutes a large portion of the book of 2 Corinthians, the book that we're going to be looking at two chapters from in this series. Now, many of the commentators that I read this week said that the book of 2 Corinthians is probably one of the most personal of all of Paul's letters because it has so much emotion in it based on their up-and-down experience 
uh, in the past between them. It's both compassionate and defensive. It's reconciling and provocative. It's forgiving and threatening. It's joyful and complaining. Paul is expressing both his love for the church community that he helped found, but also his deep disappointment about that misunderstanding of, of the nature of his ministry among them and that, and that they didn't see his heart. The first seven chapters of the book wrestle with the question of whether Paul is reliable and trustworthy. Can they depend on him and the message of the gospel that he preached to them? And that's what leads us up to the start of our series. We're going to be looking just at chapters 8 and 9 from 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles or you want to open the Bible app and click on Read, the Bi or read Bible, and it'll take you right to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says this. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, the underlying issue that we're going to see in these two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, uh, is something known as the collection. Now, remember when Paul and the early church leaders were in Jerusalem and, and they were discussing on how to handle uh, this issue of Gentiles coming into the faith, right? How do we treat uh, people that didn't grow up in Judaism? What, what do we do? How do we let them come and be a part of this new movement? Well, one of the uh, end results was that Paul, they said, Paul, when you reach out to the Gentiles, just remember the poor. Remember the poor. More than being circumcised or what you eat, just remember the poor. And Paul says that's, he already had a heart for that. Giving to the poor was a, well, something that was widely stressed in Judaism. It was one of the virtues uh, that, that the Jewish community lifted up. So whenever Paul would start a new church community around the Mediterranean, he asked them to take up a collection. Not for that church. They would do their own fundraising for their own mission and ministry. But he wanted them to give something back to the mother church back in Jerusalem. A collection for the poor Christians that are living there. Dr. Ernest Best, in his interpretation commentary in 2 Corinthians, notes that most of the Christians in Jerusalem were poor in that first century. And so Paul would have seen this as an opportunity not only to be a blessing to the Jerusalem church, to help fill a financial need. They were the ones that started it all and sent everyone out on mission and ministry throughout the whole world. But this was also a way to show the unity of the church. That, that the Gentiles, the non-Jews that had started coming to the faith, that, that they're on the same team and that we're giving willingly out of our love for God and for you and we're sharing this with you. It was, it was an expression of the love of Jesus poured out among his followers one for another. It, it was a visible symbol of the new creation that God had envisioned through the love of Jesus that broke down barriers. No longer Jew or Christian, slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Except there was a bit of a problem. It seems that the church in Corinth didn't actually contribute to the offering like they should have. When I was in seminary, uh, I was invited to a classmate's small Baptist church in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Uh, Reverend Johnny McCann was my classmate and the pastor. There were a number of offerings that were taken in this Baptist church that day. One, it was only for those that are tithing, 
We only want tithers to be given, giving during this time. And they would actually march down the front and hand their offerings up. And so I guess it was in, encouraging and inspiring for the rest of them to become tithing, to give 10% of what you, what you made uh, to the Lord. Then the second offering was the regular offering for, for everyone else to give. And then they had a third offering because there was a sister church uh, in their neighborhood that was celebrating their church anniversary. And they were going to take a bus load of people over to a worship service that evening to celebrate with them, and they wanted to give an offering. And, and two things happened during this offering that I'd never experienced before. One, Pastor Johnny made a suggested amount for the offering. We're asking everyone to give at least $20. Now, remember, this is in the early 90s, right? So $20 went along, especially to today, went a lot farther, right? So we're, we're asking that everyone give at least $20 to our sister church. Uh, and then when the collection was done, and they count it right there in front of everybody, uh, he, they told him how much they had collected, and he said, oh, no, 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 no. We can do better than that, brothers and sisters. That is not enough. And he sent the offering plate back around again so that they could have an offering that was uh, more representative of their love for the Lord and their gift to this sister church. I remember thinking, man, I could never do that in the churches that I'm serving. But Pastor Johnny felt that's what the spirit was moving, and that was a better representation of who they were. And the people responded. You only had to ask once, and then they, they, they came forward. So in a very simplistic way, I think that's what Paul is trying to do to the church in Corinth. It's like, okay, I'm going to pass the offering plate around again, says Paul, and I know you can do better this time than the time before. Uh, of course, he gives a lot more theological underpinnings uh, than what I just said, right? We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches in Macedonia for during a severe, severe ordeal of affliction their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So among the churches that had been contributing to this collection were three churches in Macedonia. Now, Macedonia was the Roman province in the northern section of Greece. Paul had founded three churches there, uh, churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Now, according to historian uh, Hans-Dieter Betz, this area was largely rural. They suffered a number of invasions and battles over the years. It took many lives. And they were, by and large, extremely, extremely poor. Now, notice the words that Paul uses, though, when he talks about these churches in Macedonia. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, most of us wouldn't put those items together, would we? Like, we wouldn't expect great affliction and poverty to result in generosity, not just generosity, but an overflowing, an abundance of generosity. But that's exactly what Paul is saying is happening to the, in the churches in Macedonia. Why? Well, because of the way those churches experience God's abundant mercy and grace. And they didn't just give, they overflowed. Now, Paul knows something about this incredible power that comes from God when, when even the, at our very weakest, God can give us incredible power and strength in the midst of all sorts of struggles and afflictions. Earlier in the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, 
Paul writes this. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and see we are alive, as punished and not yet killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. Now, you can read in the lines between some of the, maybe the misunderstanding that the community had had with Paul. He's not just talking about himself, but he's talking about Christians as a whole. This was a time in the life of the church where persecution was standard. Pretty much where, wherever you were, if you were a Christian, you were being persecuted. Paul's own faith journey was the stuff of legends. He, he was imprisoned multiple times. He was beaten, stoned, attacked, robbed, even shipwrecked. I mean, you name it, and he experienced it. And, and yet, through it all, he still kept the same passion and love and commitment to Christ Jesus. And he now sees, I think, that same commitment and dedication in the churches in Macedonia. One more insight from these verses, and then we'll move on. Notice that Paul says, we want you to know about the grace of God. The grace of God. Now, there's a word that we hear all the time, right? Uh, he's describing what's, what's, what made the churches in Macedonia overflow with love. The grace of God. Now, the word that Paul uses for grace here is charis. Charis. Uh, during the series in the, the two chapters of chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul's going to use that word charis 10 different times. But here's the interesting point. It's not always translated simply as grace. Sometimes it's referring, like here, to God's unmerited favor, the, the grace of God, the love that God bestows upon us when we didn't even deserve it. But other times, Paul is speaking about the gracious gift of the collection that's taking place among the early Christian churches all over the Mediterranean. So we're going to definitely come back to this word, charis, over and over again over the next six weeks. Verse 3, for as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means, and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. Now, one of the commentators that I read was saying that, you know, Paul knew that the churches in Macedonia were struggling, so there's a good chance that he may not have asked them to contribute to the, to the collection at the beginning, but they asked him. They, they begged to have permission. We want to help. Let us help. We can contribute as well. They weren't being pressured or, or guilted into giving. Far from it. They were giving uh, out from their own free will. And look at the phrasing that Paul uses here. Begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry. Now, the word that the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible translates as begging us earnestly is the Greek word, Paraclesis. Paraclesis. It's a compound word uh, from para to call and kaleo, near. So literally it means to call near. Uh, it's a verb. In its verb form, it can mean a variety of forms of calling something near. You can be comforting, you can be exhorting, you can be praying, inviting, and of course, in the case of our verse here, entreating, right? One of the more ex graphic examples of paraclesis in the New Testament is the story of the prodigal son. And, and the father in the story, when his wayward son finally comes home after being gone for who knows how long, he, he picks up the bottom of his robes and he runs to embrace his son. And that word, paraclesis, is used there, the act of the father running to embrace his wayward son. 
calling near, paraclesis. Of course, the ultimate paraclesis is Jesus coming near, coming to us, to earth in the form of human to live and love among us, showing us what it means to truly uh, be a part of God's gracious kingdom. In the opening verses of 2 Corinthians, Paul uses the same word, paraclesis, in referring to God when he writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of paraclesis, the God of all consolation, of drawing near. And I think what Paul is saying here in chapter 8 is that if God is the God of paraclesis, then when you see paraclesis from the Macedonians, the only way they got it was from God himself. So this was a God moment in the life of the church. Not only the Macedonian churches, but in the life of the Corinthian churches and the overall uh, early church of Christianity. That inspired by God himself, the Macedonian Christians drew near to the Jerusalem Christians through their sacrificial giving. They didn't just take up an offering. They didn't just toss a few bucks in the offering plate. No, despite not having much at all, the Macedonian Christians gave sacrificially. They gave beyond their means. Their gift was not only divinely inspired, but by the grace of God, it was a gift that embodied the very grace of God that had been given to them. Verse 5. And this, not merely as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God then to us. And I think this is my favorite part of the entire seven verses that we're looking at today. That, that Paul says the reason the Macedonian Christians could be so generous towards the collection, despite the relatively few financial resources they had to draw upon, and all of the challenges and the drama that life was throwing their way, it was because it wasn't really about the collection. Not, not really. It was about their relationship. To God, about giving themselves wholly and completely first to the Lord. Once they did that, everything else fell into place. Let, let that sink in for a moment. And this is the verse that has stuck with me this whole week, from when we were talking about it in staff meeting to as I was reading and studying and, and, and putting together what I wanted to say, because it forces me. They, they told me in seminary, the best sermons are the ones you preach to yourself. Right? Not the ones you preach to you know, those people over there. The ones you preach to yourself. And I've had to ask myself, have I given myself first to the Lord? Or am I giving myself first to my family or to my own self? Like, meaning like I'm doing whatever it is that I want to do first and foremost. The great writer C.S. Lewis once said, the more we let God take over, the more truly ourselves we become. I think this friends, is the epitome of giving ourselves first to the Lord. When we give ourselves to the Lord, we become who it is that God called and created us to be in whatever mission and ministry God places ahead of us. Paul finishes this short section to the church in Corinth by saying this in verses 6 and 7, so that we might urge Titus that as he has already made a beginning, so he should also complete this generous undertaking among you. Now, as you excel in everything and faith and speech and knowledge and utmost eagerness and in our love for you so that we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. Now, the Corinthian church had already started to take the collection about a year before, we'll find out, you know, when we look at next week's passage, 
Paul gives us that date. But somewhere along the way, they got distracted. They lost interest, or they lost the desire, the effort stalled, and they hadn't really done much for the collection. They, they had begun, but now, Paul says, okay, now is the time to rev things back up again and to complete this generous undertaking. And, and Paul's hoping that the example of the Macedonians would inspire the Corinthians to be a part of this important sharing of faith. Cynthia Hennessy, our former director of Christian education, frequently would say, um, it's not a competition. Now, that's challenging to me because I love competition, right? And the Corinthians love to compete. In fact, one commentator said that the Corinthians were pretty impressed with themselves about their own faith. They thought they were pretty good. In fact, they treated other believers as less than they were. Uh, They were always trying to one-up one another in the faith, which is, if you go back and read 1 Corinthians, that's some of the things that Paul is writing them about. Oh, whoa, whoa, it's not a competition, come on. Uh, and, and, and so Paul, uh, you know, wrote those strongly worded letters to them to try to bring a little humility into their uh, faithfulness. But here in verse, verses 6 and 7, I love it because Paul is using a little bit of uh, that reverse psychology, right? He's, he's tying into their competitive spirit. And he's like, I already know that you excel in faith, speech, and knowledge. Now, that may or may not have been true, but the Corinthians believed it was true. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, that's us. We're so good, right? Well, I want you to have that same competitive drive, Paul says, to complete this undertaking in this offering. Now, Paul is challenging them to excel in grace, in sharing with others, in giving themselves and their material resources away to others in love. Friends, we've, we've just begun the season of Lent, and these next six weeks are a wonderful time to reflect deeply, if we will take the time to do it, to reflect deeply on our own spiritual lives, the areas that we excel and the areas where we may fall short. During the season, I have to ask, can we give ourselves first and foremost to the Lord? Can we find some time every day to do something? Maybe it's to spend time in prayer. Maybe it's to read a devotional, to to open up the Bible and do a little scripture journaling. Maybe it's just to spend time in silence. And thank you, Pastor John, for that time in your prayer today for us just to be silent. Can we be open to how God wants to use us, our time, our talents, our treasures, even our testimony, right? The sharing of our faith with those people that we love. Can we allow ourselves to be inspired by the Christians in Macedonia who were so in touch with God's spirit, so filled with God's grace that despite their poverty and challenging life circumstances, they were overflowing with generosity towards others. Everybody has drama in their lives, especially right now, right? The world is in chaos. There's so much that's happening. Through all of this, can we first give ourselves to the Lord so that God can use us like God used the church in Macedonia? We say every week, Palmdale United Methodist Church, we're inspired by Jesus to love. So now it's an opportunity to reassess, is that actually true? Now, none of us are perfect, but remember, I say this from time to time, God doesn't call us to be perfect, God calls us to be faithful. So, generosity is a discipline. May we work on that discipline of giving ourselves first to God and seeing where God wants to use us over the next six weeks, that we might become the people that God has called and created us to be. Amen.